Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, April 27th, the Bible Movies Edition. I'm Gabriel Roth, an editor at Slate and the dad of Eliza, six, and Leo, who's almost three. My name is Carvel. I am a freelance writer uh, and I am the father of Ezra, who is 14, and Georgia, who is 11. Uh, Rebecca is on vacation with her family this week. She'll be back with us next time. This week, we're going to answer some questions that listeners have uh, written in to us over our email address, which is momanddad at slate.com. If you have questions that you would like us to wrestle with, you should also email us uh, at that address, uh, momanddad at slate.com. Uh, then for Slate Plus members, you're going to hear Dan Coyce, former host of this show, give a report. He's finished the first leg of his family's round-the-world sojourn. Uh, they're leaving New Zealand. They're uh, moving, I think, to Holland. Um, hear how things went in New Zealand from Dan Coyce on the Slate Plus segment of the show. If you're not yet a Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash plus or by downloading our iOS app. Search for Slate in the App Store or go to slate.com slash app and get 90 days of Slate Plus absolutely free, including the chance to hear Dan Coyce's trip report. Okay. Uh, and if you haven't yet liked us on Facebook, like us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. That's enough announcements from me. Um, let's go to triumphs and fails. Carvel, do you have a parenting triumph or fail for us? Well, I have, I have, uh, I think it's a fail, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. And it's, this is some kind of serious. So I'm going to tell you about something that's going on right now, um, in our family's experience, which is that, um, this has to do with the rising cost of living in the Bay area and, um, some of the changes that's forcing on our family. So just yesterday, a report came out on local, a local station that reported that now as of this last report, Housing and Urban Development has listed six figures for a family of four as as officially low income in the Bay Area. So if you have a family of four and your income is $104,000, you are now officially low income and qualified for low income housing in the Bay Area. That's how crazy it's gotten here. And um, so uh, last year, I got evicted from, I had this great three-bedroom apartment in Alameda that was... Um, that I paid something like $2,000 for, and it was this old place, and the landlord loved us, and blah, 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 blah. And I rented my place out on Airbnb while I was traveling for work, and I didn't even think about the rent, the like legal ramifications of it. And then I came home, and my landlord, who had always been super kind to us, had an eviction notice on our door. And so oh I ended up leaving that place, and then I found out that place then went on the market for twice what I was paying for it. And... um so my kids then moved in 100% with their mom, and we worked out this crazy arrangement where I spend five day, four days a week over there, and she travels and so on and so forth. And then her, their mom just got word that her, that, the, that her landlord is selling the house, raising the rent by 500 until she sells the house, and then is selling the house. And their mom, who currently makes six figures, 
can't afford another three-bedroom in the Bay Area. And so there's this tremendous question about what we're going to do as a family because we both apparently, like allegedly, did what you're supposed to do as an adult. Like we both went to college. We both have good jobs. I'm supposed to be this writer. She works for this company. Like everyone's doing what you're supposed to do as an adult. And yet we're not finding it possible to operate in the Bay Area. And so we're kicking all these different options around. And I'm like, we should move. Like we can't afford to live here anymore. And she's like, but then we can't uproot the kids and go take them to some random other part of the country that they've never been in and suddenly ask them to start life all over again at ages 14 and 11. And at this point, there's doubt about how to handle that. I'm sort of advocating, let's go back to the East Coast. It's actually cheaper to live in Manhattan right now than it is to live in Oakland, which is insane. I mean, people in Oakland are leaving the city in caravans. And um, and yet, she's like, well, I mean, we, I, you know, like, how are we going to uproot kids who've been born and raised in California and suddenly, like, drop them off in New York City at this age? And is that... <clears throat> and so, we, I don't, at this point, the question of a failure is, there's so many things, parts along this where I feel like, if I had just done this, if I had just done that, if we had never moved to the Bay Area, if we had stayed in New York, if we had gone back to whatever small town or whatever. But then right now in this moment, there's like, I literally don't know how to handle this with my kids. My son wants to move to New York. He loves it there. He thinks it's a big, exciting thing. My daughter has no interest in that. She's like, I don't want to leave my family. And their mom is 100% certain that she's that she's not going to uproot right now. And um, at this point, we don't really know what to do. So I feel as a parent, some sense of, I don't know if failure is the right word, but it's in that category of like, I don't I don't have an answer for this and I don't know the right way to deal with it. Yeah, this and isn't so, a failure. This is a problem. It's a terrible problem. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Whoa. Yeah. Um how yeah. how have you like how have you presented it to the kids so far? Like when when the second eviction notice came, when when their mother got the eviction notice, how how did you communicate that information to them? Yeah, well, the technically there hasn't been an eviction notice. There's just been an announcement that the owner intends to sell, but right, we sort right. of know what that means. She's not going to be able to buy the house. She looked into that, but it was like going to be insane. And so, um, we, you know, we were pretty straightforward. Like this is the deal. And I mean, kids raised in Oakland are raised knowing about about gentrification and rising housing prices from the moment they're born because it's all anyone talks about out here. So this was not a new concept to them. Um, so the plan is that that is for their mom to move in. Actually, her boyfriend has this huge three-bedroom house over by the lake and that he's had – he doesn't own it, but he rents, but he's had incredible rent stability for years and blah, blah, blah. So the, the her, her first plan is like, I'm going to move in there with the kids. They have three huge bedrooms and that's going to be fine. They like him. I like him. He seems like a good guy. So um, the kids are, are – of mixed feelings about that. My son is like kind of lukewarm about that, but gets it. My daughter's excited because she's just like, oh, I'm going to get a new room and I get to decorate it this new way. And my son's happy it'll be closer to where his friends live. And so everyone's sort of dealing with it. There doesn't seem to be as much anxiety about it as you would think. I mean, it sounds like one of those things where you're like, everything is terrible, but the kids are, are sort of aware that things happen in life. It doesn't mean the end of our family. So they seem to be dealing with it pretty well. I think she's dealing with it pretty well, although I'm, I know that there's like layers and layers of stress about it. I feel like I'm, I'm dealing with it pretty well because I already went through this last year and now I'm just, this is her first time sort of having gentrification come right to, to her kitchen and like remove stuff from her fridge. And that happened to me really last year. So I feel like I'm a little bit, 
I feel like everyone's, no one seems to be panicking or in a state of incredible discomfort, but there is a sense of not knowing if we're handling this the right way and a sense of um, that, that if we don't handle it well, the ramifications could be that we'll live to regret it, if that makes sense. It seems like now there's a lot of weight being put on their mother's relationship with her boyfriend, right? Like that becomes one of the yes. important questions now. Yes. Well, one of her thinkings, and I actually think that this logic tactically makes sense, is she's like, look, we, we, they've been together like four years, three years. She's like, look, we're going to give this a shot. If it works out, great. If it doesn't work out, I'll basically be in the same situation that I'm in now, just like a year later. So in some ways, this is a good opportunity to see what happens, which I actually think makes kind of sense. And then um, you would get a, like a place on your own nearby? Yeah, I'd have to figure out how to do that. I mean, I, I, it's a, we're all close by geographically, so that's not really an issue. But, you know, for me, like, I'm trying to figure out how to get back into a three-bedroom somewhere, and that's tricky. That's, like, not easy anymore in the Bay Area. Um, and so I, we, don't, I don't, we don't really know what the future holds. <laughs> but the, the good news is, like, as a family, we've been through not knowing what the future holds a lot. So I think we're pretty adept the four of us of handling this but what i don't i think the main thing that i don't know is if i'm part of me feels like i should be advocating much harder that we leave the area why do you feel um, because i think that maybe that's the only like for her that's just out end of story no question about it and i'm like but why is that out like we the life that we want isn't available for us here even if, even though everyone's working, like everyone's doing their job, everyone works 40 hours a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everyone is like doing their thing. And yet it's not possible for us to like organize a life because the Bay Area is just so bananas right now. And so I guess that's why I feel that. But yeah. I don't know if that's right or not. Yeah. I mean, this is what everyone in, in these big coastal cities is having to figure out right now, right? Everyone without a crazy finance job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I I hope you figure out a great solution, and and one of those magical real estate solutions drops into your lap as occasionally <laughs> yeah. happens. Uh, keep us posted. Yeah. I will. Yeah, and I'd be interested in hearing too what people share on the Facebook page and on in the community in general, because I think that this is something that like is relevant to a lot of what people are experiencing right now, which is this weird feeling of you did all this stuff that you were supposed to do to be an adult. Like you went to college, you got a job, you work consistently and, and yet somehow still finances and just having a, uh, like having a legitimate real estate life eludes you now. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of people are experiencing that. So I'd love to hear other people's thoughts, feelings, and experiences with that. And also if you have moved kids from one city to another, um, how did that go? How, what, yes. what were you afraid of and how did it work out? Um, especially yes. older kids, like uh, younger teenagers, like Carvel's kids. Um, how did that go? I have never done that uh, with kids. I've moved across the country several times before my kids were born, but now it's a completely different uh, different question. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, I don't have a crisis like that, fortunately. I just have uh, one of those uh, ordinary <laughs> everyday, failure. everyday failures. Yeah, uh, that's all I have. Um, <laughs> this is actually a failure that's like it hasn't happened yet, but I have like meticulously put all the pieces in place for, for a failure. Uh, so now it's just a matter of watching the train of failure come rolling down the tracks. Um, 
I'm going away for work later this week. I'm I'm going to Canada for like three days to speak at a conference. And um, I don't usually travel for work very much. And so my kids aren't used to it and, and nor does my wife. And so, uh, you know, we've each been away like once in their lives. Uh, and so I very carefully like laid it out for them. You know, later this week, I'm going to be going out of town for a few days. And so I'll miss you a lot and you'll miss me too. But we then I'll be back and we'll see each other again and I'll be so happy to see you and like that and it was okay um eliza was a little like she gets very upset when anything like that is about to happen um and so i spelled it out for her very carefully i'll be here this day i'll take you to school this day then i'm going to get on this plane and then two days later i'm going to get on another plane and come back not a big deal and of course i say to her uh and when i come back you know i hear they sometimes they have things for kids in canada and maybe i'll bring you a little something in my suitcase um which is the sort of standard operating procedure when you go on a trip right you bring back something mm-hmm. for the kids and she Absolutely. latches onto that and immediately <laughs> she says so what is it going to be is it going to be uh, and she begins like a barbie dream house Uh-oh. or whatever it wasn't that specifically but it was whatever is her contemporary <laughs> equivalent of the, of the barbie dream house um no it's probably not going to be a barbie dream house is it going to be the, uh, we're not discussing what it's going to be it's going to be a surprise the surprise is what oh, you say when man. you don't have an answer right and so now every sort of two or three hours she'll ask something like do they have My Little Pony in Canada? <laughs> Just apropos of nothing in particular. Just curious whether the My Little Pony line of products has made its way over to Canada. <laughs> so now there's really, there's nothing I can, like what I'm thinking is literally, like what I had been thinking is literally like a stuffed moose from the Toronto yeah. airport. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely, of like course. Like a medium-sized stuffed moose with a yeah. like maple leaf thing on. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And now, like, oh man, that is just not going to cut it anymore. Um, so I don't know what oh, to do. Man. I will probably wind up getting uh, the stuffed moose and a candy bar. We'll, we'll see yeah. how that goes. Um, yeah. Yeah. But so yeah, I, I have set my children up for for uh, bitter, bitter disappointment. How old? How old? She's again? six. She's six yeah. and yeah, she's at a she's yeah, at you've, that acquisitive stage. Yeah, you've committed the classic blunder right there, which is <laughs> you've stated that you have a surprise mm. that you intend to be small, and mm-hmm. that in a child's imagination, the word surprise only yeah. means you're bringing me a literal Corvette drive, like a pony <laughs> driving a Corvette, basically. It's what I expect. It's exactly and anything right. less than that is going to be a disappointment. So, pro- I mean, probably what I would do in your situation is I would begin to downgrade. You know, I begin to expectation manage. Yeah. Going, you're like, you know, they do have a lot of things there, but I'm not going to be able to carry something really big on the plane. Suitcase isn't very big. Yeah, classic. Suitcase or whatever. So I think it'll probably be something small. Yeah. Um, and Small, but know, very pretty. Something small, small but, but really pretty. pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. I mean, yeah. it changes from, like, Leo is like two and three quarters, almost three. And like now if I say a surprise, he's excited for the surprise. And if I give him a moose, he'll be excited about the moose. Like whatever it is, he hasn't yet, he doesn't have the mental capacity to form an expectation of what the surprise will be. (laughs) But I didn't realize that she's crossed that line to where you say surprise. And now she has like seven incredibly specific (laughs) products in her mind. Like she could tell you like the barcode SKU of each of the My Little Pony (laughs) products. And if it isn't all seven of those, then it's going to be an incredible disappointment for her uh it's yes, it's yes. a moving target this stuff it sucks That's, it is it is but uh um you're right you've set up for a failure but i think i think it's not too late to to uh dig yourself out i hope not 
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. All right, let's get to our first question from a listener. We got this question over email. So the voice you're going to hear reading the question is not the voice of the person who sent us the question. I have to be very clear about that. Uh, It's the voice, rather, of June Thomas, who hosts Slate's The Americans podcast. My husband and I are not religious types, but our relatives are. They give our children Bible storybooks, stuffed animals that recite prayers, Bible verse t-shirts, and recently, for Easter, a bunch of Christian movies. I've never particularly minded. My first grader has an interest in reading the Bible, so maybe he'd enjoy these movies. I'm worried because he's old enough now that these lessons can sink in. Lessons like God only lets certain kinds of people in heaven, the brutality of the cross, men are better leaders than women, obedience to God is the highest value, etc. I feel I should screen these movies before I let the kids take it in. But really, who has the time for that? What do you think? Should I trash them? Should I supplement these films with a kid version of the Quran? Thanks for your thoughts. Okay, thanks, June. And thanks to the listener who wrote in with that question. Carvel, what do you think? Ooh, man, that is, uh, (laughs) that's complex. I mean, I, I, I tend to be a little more... Uh, accepting of religion conceptually, even organized religion, than most people I know. Even though I'm not myself a, a member of any church or anything of the of this of the sort. But what what? So I'm not initially or kind of like um, inherently revolted by the concept of someone introducing bi- biblical concepts of Christianity to my kids behind my back. I know that really triggers some people, and I think that's understandable. I don't personally have that, but what I hear underneath this question is really just the basic question that all parents have, which is the regulation of, of media, right? Like people are bring things or ideas and concepts are coming to our kids through the media and whether it's like uh, adult content or whether it's like misogynist stuff or racist stuff or violence or whatever it is, and how do we account for the fact that they're going to be getting stuff behind our back that we can't control all of? And so I guess the I, th- I guess advice wise, the question that I hear in there is like, should I like screen all this stuff or should I just throw it all out? And my guess is that. It's not possible to screen all of it. I think you should screen as much as you can, even if it's after the kids have watched it, right? I don't know that you need to like make yourself the kind of quality assurance manager that it has to go through you before it gets to them, because I think that's just kind of impractical. But I I think it's always good to be on the same page with your kids about whatever media they're seeing. You kind of want to watch it with them or after them so you can talk about it with them. And it's fine if I think if kids hear concepts like, 
I mean, I, and, and again, not these aren't even really Christian concepts, but they may come through Christian media. But like if kids hear things that are disturbing, I don't think that that's necessarily a problem as long as a parent is there to say, hey, I know this is on your mind. Do you have any questions about it? Here are some thoughts I have about it. You know, these are some of the values that we like to believe in this family and the kids can make their own decisions. I don't know that it's it's necessary to just throw things out wholesale because you think there may possibly be something in there that may be a little difficult for your kid to manage. That's one thing. The other thing is I think it's so interesting that this person didn't talk about talking to the parents about this, like saying, hey, you know, when you give our kids like all this like biblical paraphernalia it puts me in a difficult position. Can you maybe slow down on that? So there's some reason why the person, why that wasn't an option that they asked about. And I don't know what that is, but I would also recommend that too. Like that's a conversation adults should have. Like you're putting a lot of stuff into my house that I'm not quite ready for. Can we kind of slow the roll in that? But outside of that, I think that if the kids are interested, let them explore it and just be sure that you are up on what is in that content at some point, either before or after, so that you can sort of parent accordingly. Yeah, I think I'm going to take a firmer line on this than you are. I should start by saying I'm not a religious person. I don't come from a religious family, but I did go to to Christian schools. I was I grew up in England and I went to Church of England schools, and I I got a sort of generic Christian education, um, and it it didn't bother me. And in some ways, it was culturally enriching. And when I was a kid, I definitely had like kid Bibles and Old and New Testaments, and I enjoyed them. And I I I, I think it occupied a pretty similar role in my childhood life as like the book of Greek myths. You know what I mean? Like here are some mm-hmm. really cool yeah, stories. That's a good analogy. And right. once you once you know those stories, if you don't subscribe to that religion, you see those stories pop up again and again as you get older, yeah. like in all literature and all culture. Yeah. It 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 yeah. gives resonance to all kinds of experiences and that's great. And it helps you understand all kinds of things about the world and that's great. Um in this case, it seems like from the letter writer's description, it seems like what we're talking about is a particular form of contemporary Christianity that is is different from what I experienced growing up and that sort of contradicts the letter writer's values in a pretty firm way, right? And would also contradict my values, quite frankly. God only lets certain kinds of people in heaven. Well, most Christians, I think, believe some version of that. That's probably wrong, and I shouldn't speak for Christians. But um, the brutality of the cross, like, yeah, okay, violent stories. and But, I, you know, there was a violent story where, like, Kronos eats his children in my Greek myths book. Mm-hmm. I, I, I right. liked that one. But then right. men are better leaders than women. That is not very good. Um, obedience to God is the highest value. That is also unfortunate. Um, there are forms of, of media that are essentially propaganda for a worldview that I find pretty abhorrent and that are propaganda directly aimed at children. And I suppose you could argue that I let my children watch all sorts of commercial propaganda for my little pony toys or whatever. Um, and that might not even be wrong. But um, when you're faced with something that really espouses a worldview that you that that really is the opposite of what you want to teach your children i think my move would not be to let them watch it and then address it with them afterward in that case i think my move would be to like quietly get rid of it and and not give them access to it and uh 
as they get older, they can experience more and more parts of the world, including things that I find abhorrent and reprehensible, and they can, um, you know, do with that what they want. And, and I think it's unlikely that they will grow up to become, you know, Christian misogynists or, or doctrinaire right-wingers or whatever. But if right. they do, then that's their prerogative. But Right. Well, part of the thing that was interesting is that, so I, 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 it, this has to do with the way we interpreted the way the person wrote the letter. Because I, maybe I didn't read it closely enough, but I didn't hear that that was actually what was in the content, more that that's what the letter writer was afraid and assumed was going to be in the content, Right. But I don't know that the letter writer was like, yeah, I saw this stuff and it was like, men are better than women. And I was like, what should I do about this? Like, you know what I'm saying? So I think that there, I mean, not all Christian material is like that. Some is and some isn't. And I think the question that this letter writer is facing, and again, maybe you know more about what what type of Christian media is implied by this letter than I do. But I don't know what type of Christian media is implied by this letter. It sounded like what the person was saying was, I'm getting this Christian stuff, and I'm afraid it's going to be all these things. Yeah. And I want to screen it, but I don't know if I have time to screen all of it. And so I'm like, yeah, screen as much as you can, but also like, like recognize that you don't have to like sort of pick through every single piece of media like it's you know like you're picking stones out of black beans in order for your kids to watch it at a certain point more information is going to come to your kids and you just sort of want to be in the i think you just sort of want to be in the general neighborhood of stuff that they're getting so that you can talk about that stuff as it comes up but i mean yeah if someone was like hey i gave your yeah i got this dvd about how men are the reflection (laughs) of god and women are the servants I would be like, actually, you need to get off my porch right now. Here's some Nazi propaganda for your children. (laughs) It'll keep them entertained the next time you need to do housework. Um, No, I guess my assumption is, because the letter writer says, my husband and I are not religious types, but our relatives are. So I assume that Mm -hmm. she and her husband are, to some degree, familiar with the particular Christian culture that this stuff is coming out of. um, And and that she can sort of assess with a reasonably high degree of accuracy, like Mm -hmm. what is being put pushed in these particular movies. Um, and right. I also think, frankly, you could probably tell a lot by reading the jacket copy on these DVDs, right? Like you can tell mm-hmm. like horrible sexist Christianity from pleasant benign Christianity pretty mm-hmm. easily. They don't usually try to, I, maybe they do try to disguise them. I don't know. Um, in any case, I think the bottom line is like, you definitely have no obligation to your kids or to your family members to like, allow them to watch movies that you think are reprehensible in the exact same way that I wouldn't let my yes. kids watch pornography or watch violent horror movies. Uh, yeah. And in the same way that your Christian relatives, I'm sure there are plenty of movies that your Christian relatives wouldn't want their children watching. Yeah, Um, that's right. You you have to exercise that same prerogative. Yeah, but I I still, and I wish I could, I always wish I could like ask the letter writer more questions, but I still wonder why, I want to know more about their relationship with these relatives, right? Are these like just the crazy relatives who who live in a Christian compound and are probably going to get into a gunfight with the FBI within the next couple of weeks or do not let them babysit. Do not let them babysit. I think we covered that three episodes ago. No sleepovers. Um, (laughs) No sleepover at the compound. (laughs) But you know, um, unless your kids are firearms trained for firearm safety, but, um, but if it's not that, then it's like, I, I, I always feel like that's the first stop, right? You have to go to your, these people, these adults and say, Hey, look, I really appreciate you reaching out to my kids and wanting to connect with them. This is a bit much for us. Can you can you dial that back a little bit? You know, and I think I just think it's interesting, but I don't know why 
this is the case, but I think it's interesting that that was one of the options that was not addressed or asked about in the letter. It's like, should I let them watch it? Should I not let them watch it? Should I screen it? Not, should I tell these people to stop sending my kids this stuff that I find so morally reprehensible? Yep. Absolutely. All right. Uh, If you are listening and you are a Christian or a participant in Christian culture, what did we get wrong? How wrong are we? Tell us how wrong we are on our Facebook page, or maybe we're not wrong in any way. That's what I think. (laughs) Uh, Let us know on Facebook, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting, or email us at momanddad at slate.com. Nickelodeon's got your preschoolers covered from sunrise to bedtime with four brand new podcasts. Grab their backpack and go on a culinary quest with Dora's Recipe for Adventure. Make game time great time with Let's Guess Who with Josh and Blue. And tuck in for adventure with Nickelodeon's Goodnight Bedtime Stories. Plus, we've got a brand new season of Storytime with Josh and Blue. Search Nickelodeon on your favorite podcast app to listen. Okay, on to another one of your letters. Uh, To read this letter, again, we have not the letter writer herself, but instead Mary Wilson, producer of Slate's daily news podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. And the letter reads, Hi, here's a fun question. Our seven-year-old daughter and five-year-old son are the best of friends. They never fight yet and are always together. They play all the normal kid make-believe stuff, but sometimes they play We're Getting Married or This Is Boyfriend, and it just skews me out of my skin. Is this normal play, or should I be dropping them off for some inpatient therapy? We keep all media very G-rated, and the YouTube Kids app is heavily monitored when they're using it. Any advice? How should I be reacting to this? Thanks, Mary. Thank you. Uh, How should she be reacting to this? Should she be signing her kids up for some form of intensive, probably Freudian therapy? What do you think? (laughs) No, not yet. Um, five and seven, were those the ages? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, like, I don't, it seems pretty normal that a five-year-old and a seven-year-old are going to, like, want to play out, you know, some things that they see in the adult world that they think grown-ups do. And now, now I'm going to work. This is my house. This is my husband. This is my boyfriend. Like, I, that doesn't in and of itself seem weird. So I don't know that the kids are indicating anything that makes you feel like you need to take, take them to therapy. I do, uh... Um, understand, however, that it in the adult imagination that like brings up things that we find super uncomfortable. Um, and but that's you have to separate your imagination out from the kids' actions. That's kind of a, a general rule I have about parenting because kids do a simple action, and I then imagine all kinds of terrible things as a result. And if I if I believe too heavily in my imagination, then I act regrettably as a parent, like usually overreact or whatever. So. I think it's fine. I think you keep an eye on it. I think most kids sort of naturally figure out um, where the line is. They don't even have the desire to cross it. So um, I don't think you need to assume that you need to intervene. But I know with our kids, I don't remember how we did. My kids are of two and a half years apart, a boy and a girl. And definitely at some point, we the conversation casually happened like well you don't marry your sister you don't you're not boyfriends with your brother that's something that people don't do right like and i don't remember how that came up but it sort of casually came up it didn't seem like they struggled with that concept it didn't seem like they pushed back against it um i thought it was helpful to establish that those are the rules that we operate by as a society but i also didn't feel like um it was necessary in the sense that like if we didn't tell them they would go this other direction. And I think that's a general thing that I think, and other people may feel differently, that that 
we don't it's not like we have to prevent incest in some kind of like direct way um i think it generally doesn't really happen in normal healthy families and um so i don't think you need to be overly uh, proactive or preemptive about it i think if it's uncomfortable you keep an eye on it and you see if anything any kind of exploration or play is happening um that makes either of the kids uncomfortable, that makes you uncomfortable, and then maybe you could have a, a conversation to find out more about it. I think that's exactly right. I think, as you said, this is a case of kids playing a game of replicating adult relationships, right? This is, they see what adults are doing, and they do that in their play. That's a totally standard thing. And they're using the tools they have available. They're using the available resources, which in this case is their sibling. Right. If you are a seven year old girl and you're playing at home with you and there's you don't have any friends over and you want to play house, then the available resources are your five year old brother. And like, there you go. So he's going to be the husband and I'm going to be the wife. He's going to be the dad. I'm going to be the mom. And look, we're playing. We're being a family. This is not about a like attraction between the two children. This is about a game of replicating adult relationships. Um, I know when I talked to my daughter at one point and we were talking about growing up and someday you'll grow up and maybe you'll be a mommy if you want to be a mommy and won't that be fun? And she said, I want to be a mommy and great. And she said, who's going to be the daddy? And I said, well, whoever you choose. And she said, maybe Leo meeting her younger brother, because, uh, that's all she can think of. She's trying to replicate her family. She likes her family. She likes living in a house yeah. with me and her mom and her and her brother. And so she's going to do that. And I said, well, actually, you can't really do that. And she said, okay. It's just you have to explain the rules to them a little bit. And then she understands and they can still play at it. Um, this all seems fine. There are obviously like forms of play that you might want to discourage um, it's, if they, if you caught them playing doctor, I think that would be like totally normal. Like the curiosity about the body mm -hmm. of the other gender or whatever, completely normal. Um, if you want to, you could probably discourage that. You probably shouldn't like punish it or be super harsh on it. Um, but even that would be totally normal. And then there are kinds of play that you would want to say, whoa, no, we don't do that. And that's not allowed and whatever. It's all growing up and figuring this stuff out. Um, and I think the idea that, I guess this is what you were saying, the idea that a seven-year-old and a five-year-old should already know all of these rules, that doesn't seem like a fair expectation to put on them. Like, no, they don't know the rules. You have to, like, explain to them how all this stuff works. Yep. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Carvel, do you have anything to recommend? Uh, yeah, I do. So this one, a lot of these recommendations, I have to reach back into the archives because my kids are too old for any parenting right now. They don't need me. Dad, I don't need you. You don't understand. But when, when they were little kids, we had to do a lot of intervention. And one thing I was remembering, um, that we used to, that we did for like a, maybe six months or a year and it's worked super well was what we called this story timer. And the story timer is a response to the fundamental issue of having siblings, which is that they are in constant competition for the attention and affection of the parent or parents. And one of the ways this played out in our household is that kids would use their t talking time at the dinner table to subconsciously or subliminally dominate the other child. So they would, they would open up long rambling stories 
knowing good and well that the other kid was waiting for a chance to speak. And then they would keep adding long clauses onto the stories and, and like going off on bizarre tangents. And then if the other kid tried to interrupt, they would then try and like use the no interrupting rule to hold the floor. It was Your really kids brilliant. Are so to watch. smart. Yeah. They're like filibuster. It was like filibustering. That's wow. really what it was. Like kids, kids in my, the kids used to filibuster. And um, so we had to introduce, because we had the no interrupting rule, and that was something that we were clear about when the other person's talking, you don't interrupt them, you let them finish your thought, their thought, you listen to them, and then you respond. And like they, of course, use that to basically jab at each other throughout dinner. And so we started this thing called the story timer. Where basically, as soon as a kid was like about to tell a story, they would have to announce they were going to tell a story, and then we would set the timer. And I think for a while we had three minutes, and then sometimes we would do five minutes. Um, and it wasn't every time the kid started talking, but we could, we would. I, part of my job is like the sort of conversation moderator was to be like, "This sounds like a story." This is when they were like maybe seven through ten. This sounds like a story. Do you think the story timer would be helpful here? Or and they usually are like, "Okay, fine." So then we put in the story timer, and it's like two minutes or three minutes to tell it. And what I found that was amazing about it is that how how not only did it help them become aware of the fact that conversation is a give and take, not just a take and take, but it also started helping them. I think really organize this, the important parts of their story. Wow! And I think it it like helped them start to think about how do you communicate. Like, how do you get to the point? Because so many times when my kids are talking, and maybe you're, you guys are thinking this right now, so many times when my kids are talking, I'm like, what's the point? Get to the point, <laughs> right? And I'm sure they get that from me. But the story timer is super awesome because it, I think it helps kind of organize some of their thinking. And who knows, maybe later, like years later, when they take the SAT or whatever, like essay stuff, they'll be able to call on those skills. So I recommend the story timer. You, We used it kind of at will with the permission of the kids. We set stories for three, maybe five, sometimes seven minutes if we felt it was going to be a long one. And it also helped the other kid know that their time was coming up. They just had to wait out the timer. Did um, the kids ever the hear timer. you or their mother uh, start a story and try to turn <laughs> the story timer back on you? My kids <laughs> no, would definitely, I when they hear me revving up a story, they would definitely want to use the story timer on me. No, that never happened. But if they did, that would be great because then you could be like, good, I'll do the story timer. And yeah. then, you know, you just get to your point. Yeah, that is great. I'm definitely yeah. going to do this. Um, I have a recommendation. It's not nearly as good as the story timer. I have a recommendation that I want to qualify very, very strongly by saying that this is very useful to solve a certain highly specific problem. The highly specific problem that I was facing was we listen to music on Spotify and it's great because you have all the music. You don't have to like buy the record that they want to hear or whatever. So if they want to hear the soundtrack from Moana, we can listen to the soundtrack from Moana obsessively for a month and then not listen to it again. So Leo, two and a half, almost three, really will want to hear, let's say, the wheels on the bus or really will want Oof. to hear um, she'll be coming around the mountain. And if Oof, you type so sorry. the wheels on the bus into the Spotify search field, there are like a thousand versions of the wheels on the bus. And all ah. of them are by people, usually in like former Soviet states with a Casio <laughs> keyboard, <laughs> doing just appalling versions of the wheels on the bus that like they're getting, you know, $3 out of making this version yeah. of the wheels on the bus and it takes them 10 minutes. Um <laughs> And and listening to those renditions of these already annoying songs, listening to these tinny, horrible versions of annoying songs, 
like it can drive you insane. And then you say, no, we can't listen to wheels on the bus. And then he gets mad because she got to listen to what she wants. Why can't I listen to wheels on the bus? Whatever. The solution to this highly specific problem, my recommendation is, uh, Laurie Berkner's favorite classic kids songs. It's an album. It's mm. got like 60 songs. It has the wheels on the bus. It has, she'll be coming around the mountain. It has every song your kid, your kid is going to request, but they're very pleasant arrangements, very wholesome instrumentation, and she has a lovely voice, and they're thoughtfully harmonized, and it's actually quite nice to listen to a pleasant arrangement of Wheels on the Bus in a sort of contemporary folk style. So save that as a playlist or whatever, Laurie Berkner's favorite classic kids' songs, and then you never have to listen to these awful Yugoslavian versions of the Wheels on the Bus. <laughs> That's my recommendation. Uh, we'll link to it on our show page, which uh, we will post on our Facebook page from one page to another. Okay. Uh, that's it for our show. Um, it has been a pleasure talking to you, Carvel listeners. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer, email them to mom and dad at slate.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad, or call into our voicemail at 424-255-7833. And then we won't have to get a slate staffer to read your letter. 424-255-7833. If you want to hear your voice on the podcast, I have some exciting news, which is that this podcast will be back next week and every week thereafter. That's right. We're going to a weekly schedule. Uh, I will be back in one week with Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoy. Uh, send us questions and topics that you would like to hear us discuss. Uh, I hope you're as excited about this as we are. If you're not, uh, you can skip every other episode and it'll be just like it was before. Mom and Dad are Fighting was produced by Zach Dinerstein. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas is the managing producer. Mom and Dad are Fighting is a production of the Panoply Network, of which Andy Bowers is the chief content officer. I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll be back next week. And the wheels on the bus go on.